Myanmar and Russia have diplomatic ties going back to the early days of Burmese independence and the Soviet Union. Since the coup in Myanmar and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the country's leaders are once again moving closer. Effectively, now we have the second honeymoon period in Russia-Myanmar relations. When there is stability, when the country is prospering in a peaceful conditions, then the role of Russia decreases. And a new book details the legacy of Myanmar's military and its future. And in some ways, it's a continuation of the military before, but this is probably more violent than we've ever seen a military in Myanmar before. And I think that's largely probably because of the, the resistance against it is so strong. Plus, at a study center in Thailand, Burmese students learn English and about their fellow countrymen. In Yangon, in a big city, they face really bad. I heard that we can saw that the soldier just shot down the people in the on the road or something like both sides. It was so bad, even more than like a, in my hometown now. You are listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast, a transmission of conflict and culture from inside and outside Myanmar. I'm Justin Higginbottom. We have those stories and more coming up. But first, we have a rundown of this week's news from the Irrawaddy. Thank you for listening and stay with us. The civilian death toll at the hands of Myanmar's junta and allied militia hit a grim milestone this week. The Assistance Association for Political Prisoners has documented the 3,000th death. According to the group, the victim was a 70-year-old nun burned alive in her home in the Zagaing region. The resistance stronghold of Zagaing has suffered the highest death toll, nearly 41%, since the coup and resulting conflict. The United States has condemned the Myanmar regime's arrest and detention of prominent Kachin Christian leader, Reverend Kalem Samson. The reverend was charged under counterterrorism laws. Samson had met former President Donald Trump in 2019 at the White House. Ethnic armed groups fight against the um, uh, central military government. So please, uh, the American government focus on ethnic uh, people and ethnic right. leader to get genuine democracy and federalism. At the time, the Myanmar military's Northern Command attempted to take legal action against Samson for those remarks, but the case was dropped. State Department spokesman Ned Price called for Samson's release and noted the Reverend's work advocating for religious freedom in the country. A letter smuggled out of Mandalay's Oboe prison says staff are beating and torturing female political prisoners held there. According to the message, over 100 female inmates were injured by guards in January. Prison officials have also reportedly cut food and opportunities to bathe for the inmates. There are 44 prisons and 50 labor camps across Myanmar, holding over 15,000 political detainees. That's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. The Myanmar military's Yangon Command presented honorary titles to two Buddhist monks, including firebrand nationalist U Wiatu. U Wiatu is notorious for his views critical of Muslims in the country. Thai magazine once called him the Buddhist Bin Laden. He spent a year on the run from a sedition charge in 2019 over remarks he made about now-jailed state councillor Da Aung San Suu Kyi. But he's retained support among hardline Buddhist nationalists in the country. These are sounds from his supporters in 2020 protesting his imprisonment. 
Also at the ceremony were members of the Ultranationalist Association for Protection of Race and Religion, better known by its Burmese acronym, Mabata. The association has been less active over the past few years, but has never died out. With backing by the Myanmar military, analysts predict the group could rise again. You're listening to a recent attack by the Red Wolves of Mogok against junta troops. Gem mining in Mogok has slowed according to merchants. That's due to fighting like this in the area. But the civilian national unity government is planning for a resurgence if they win their war against the junta. The NUG has begun offering 45 gem mining rights in the area known as Rubyland. A spokesperson says that one entrepreneur has already invested $4 million. The money will go to funding the NUG's revolution, and the investor will be granted the mining rights when the dictatorship is ousted, according to the NUG. The civilian government's planning and finance ministry says it has raised more than $100 million so far from various investment and property dealings, including selling two mansions belonging to Hunta Boss Min Online. <laughs> Protesters with the Dewai Democracy Movement Strike Committee marched through Longlawn Township this week. They called for a boycott of Thai energy giant Petroleum Authority of Thailand, or PTT, in their township. The group says PTT helps to fund Myanmar's junta. The company pays the regime over $500 million a year through its projects throughout the country. That's according to Human Rights Watch. PTT and its subsidiaries took over operations from Corporation Total Energies after the French company abandoned their project in protest of junta atrocities. Energy groups Chevron and Woodside have also left Myanmar amid pressure from humanitarian groups. Relations between Myanmar and Russia have ebbed and flowed in the last century. As an arms dealer, Russia has been especially useful for Myanmar's military. Russia has arms, which are very suitable for, for the Burmese army, and it has a lot of uh, know-how in dealing with, with protest movements. So this is, this is important. That's Michal Lubina. He's an associate professor at Jagiellonian University in Poland and an expert in Russia and Myanmar relations. He says another benefit for Burmese generals is that Russia isn't China. Russia is far away. Russia would never invade Myanmar. There are not many Russians in Myanmar. The economic cooperation is weak. So, so basically, it's a, it's a very good arms provider because it's, it's politically not dangerous. That partnership between Russia and the Myanmar military waned as Myanmar liberalized and began a transition to democracy. Russia was in a way overshadowed in Myanmar by, by the general opening up of the country to the, the world. When there is stability, when country is prospering in a peaceful conditions, then the role of Russia decreases. But that stability has collapsed for Myanmar. New forces around the country are challenging the military's power. And coincidentally, this is happening at a time when Russia could use all the friends they can get. Effectively, now we have the second honeymoon period in Russia-Myanmar relations. It's a perfect storm of geopolitics that has brought the junta and Russian President Vladimir Putin ever closer. My argument is that Russia-Myanmar relations are now a perfect asymmetrical patron-client relations. So Russia is the patron uh, and, and Myanmar is the client of the Burmese junta, to be exact, is the client. And that works for both sides. Uh, that's suitable for both sides. 
Similar to 20 years ago, the junta needs some state other than China to rely on. And Lubina says that's Russia. So if they win, Russia would be the biggest political winner of the, of the, of the situation in Myanmar. Because they supported the generals uh, in times of dire straits, in times of need. One open question for Lubina is the impact of the war in Ukraine on Russia's ability to supply Myanmar's military. This week was the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. Since then, they've lost a lot of hardware. That was a rundown of the latest news from the Irrawaddy. You can find the stories mentioned at our website. We'll have links in the show notes. And we'll also have a link for you to support the Irrawaddy's ongoing coverage of Myanmar. And now for our war report, the latest news from the ongoing conflict. At least 225 Myanmar regime forces and allied militia members have been killed in the last week of clashes. You were listening to footage of airstrikes near the Thai border posted to social media last year. Myanmar's junta has conducted 307 airstrikes in Krin National Union territory over the past two years. That's killed 36 and injured 57, according to the KNU. Landmines and unexploded munitions injured or killed more than one person every day in Myanmar last year. That's according to the United Nations. There's been a 40% spike in casualties compared to 2021. Myanmar's junta has imposed martial law on three more townships, bringing the number under direct military control to around 50. In these areas, military courts hear any case deemed critical of the regime, and the death penalty and life sentences can be handed down with little chance of appeal. A couple who joined the People's Defense Forces were killed and their bodies burned by junta soldiers during a raid on their camp in Magwe recently. They were members of the Urban Underground Revolution Force, and they were due to be married the next day. The Irrawaddy collected the following reports from PDF and EAO sources. Some military casualty figures could not be independently verified, and this is not a complete accounting of recent fighting. As of February 25th, 16,005 political prisoners were still detained by the Myanmar military. 3,030 have been killed by the junta so far. That's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners. You can find more at the Irrawaddy's website in the section called War Against the Junta. You're listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast. Oliver Slow first set out to write sort of a light-hearted travelogue about a recently opened up Myanmar. He was working in the country as a journalist as it transitioned towards a democracy, and he collected stories and interviews in areas previously inaccessible. But it was the military's brutal attacks on the Rohingya in 2019 that made him shift focus. His book released this week is called Return of the Junta, Why Myanmar's Military Must Go Back to the Barracks. I spoke with Slo about his book and the legacy of Myanmar's military. Since the coup, we've, we've seen you know, quite a lot of reporting on the violence from the military, whether it's, you know, bombing schools that we saw in, in uh, Sagaing region uh, late last year. We've seen, you know, torching villages, 
the, the violence one is nothing new. This goes as far back to the 60s. Pretty drastic coup took place in the 1960s when Ne Win came to power, dictator, and really changed the course of history for the country. And these deadly crackdowns kind of continued whenever really there was sort of rise up of protests against the military rule for the next several decades. But it's also the legacy goes beyond just the violence, goes into the education system when, again, when that sort of 62 administration came to power, it sort of defined itself as sort of a socialist regime. So it, it really changed the education system to try and kind of create this pretty pliant uh, population. They've also kind of overseen, the, the military has overseen a pretty strong kind of divide and conquer strategy towards the ethnic groups in Myanmar. And that's kind of led to not just resentment, but, you know, conflict in the border areas for several decades, which has kind of stunted growth in those areas. And then the final area, which I think is crucial as well, is the economy. You know, Myanmar is a hugely, it has huge economic potential, both in terms of where it is at the crossroads of sort of China and India, but also in terms of the resources, natural resources it has. It has everything from jade to amber to teak wood to oil and gas. And yet, you know, the people are desperately poor while the military sort of made itself richer and richer. Myanmar's military has had a prominent role in the country since its independence. Is there anything that remains in this junta from the anti-colonial Burma Independence Army of the 40s? They see themselves as a continuation of that, but I think they're as far removed from that the IA as possible. Um, that, that was a pretty well-loved, well-respected army. They see themselves as, as I say, a continuation of that that has, you know, protected the country and held the country together after independence. But it's about as far removed from that as possible, I think. And in particular, you know, throughout the 50s, Nguyen, who was the head of the army, that built up its capabilities pretty drastically, you know, he introduced new training programs, he introduced new colleges and schools, which remain in use today. But throughout the sort of 60s and onwards, he sort of created this as, you know, the phrase is state within a state that it is today, where it has its own schools, has its own economy. People who grow up in the military apparatus, you know, they, they live behind the, those walls the whole of their lives. They don't interact with the general population. And I think that's led to this massive split between how the military views itself as this kind of all-powerful conquering institution to how most of the population sees them, which is as this really problematic force that has destroyed the country. What level of support does the military have in the country? And after this conflict, do you think the majority of Burmese will ever allow them to have a role in governance again? Yeah, well, I think in, in answer to the first question, in, in, in terms of popularity, it's as, low, it's as low as it's ever been. I think, you know, even the only ones who I think support the military staying in power are military families, as far as I can, you know, conversations I've had with colleagues and friends and things. And even even within that, that elite group, so I think some are like, take the view that actually the military should remove itself from power, should be removed. So I guess in answer to the second question is that I see no space for people to accept this military to be, or any military really, because they want they want the military to be not involved in politics. So they, they really just, I don't see any space really for people to accept this military returning to power in any sort of form they want them. What else should readers take away from this book, especially those from the international community that might not be so aware of what's happening on the ground in the country? I think when I speak, especially I'm here in London, people sometimes ask what's going on and there's sort of this automatic assumption that, oh, Myanmar's back to being a military state again. That's the way it is. But I guess one of the key takeaways I want to be is to be like, well, this isn't the Myanmar of the past, where in 1988 there was a massive uprising, the military came back and people kind of largely accepted that. I think this is pretty different now. Uh, and I think there is this, you know, need to recognize that Myanmar isn't sort of 
inevitable military state. People do want democracy there. Democracy can happen in Myanmar and should happen. And, should, and then, you know, the ancestral community should try and support that. The future of Myanmar will be driven primarily by dynamics inside Myanmar. But there is a role I think governments can play. And that's whether that's supporting one, providing humanitarian assistance where they can. Uh, one, two is providing kind of as, as much assistance as support as possible to democratic forces in Myanmar. Uh, three is sort of targeting sanctions against the military. Now, a lot of countries have introduced sanctions against the military, but there are still massive gaps in a lot of areas. And then the final one, I think, is looking at justice mechanisms. And these are all kind of like important steps, I think. I don't think they will make a massive difference on their own. But working together, those are the steps I think governments can take to try and support the Myanmar people in their efforts to remove the military from power. That was Oliver Slow. His book, Return of the Junta, Why Myanmar's Military Must Go Back to the Barracks, is available now. Since the coup, waves of Bamar or Burman, the majority ethnic group in Myanmar, have fled the country to avoid oppression. Many have ended up in northern Thailand where they join Burmese from ethnic areas that have also fled fighting and poverty. For students at an English learning center in Chiang Mai, that provides a unique opportunity to learn more about the country they left. Wawa and her husband were living in Yangon, working in media when the military took power just over two years ago. They documented the protests and watched with horror as the military violently put them down and they waited to figure out whether they should join the exodus of journalists leaving the country. They have four daughters, and they were mostly thinking about them when they decided to leave. And um, at one point, we heard that like when the military um, uh, security forces, they patrolling at night, we heard that like, we gonna kill your husbands and we gonna rape your daughters. You know, they say that word loudly. So the family fled to Thailand, joining thousands of other Burmese since the coup. But since settling in the northern city of Chiang Mai, it's been hard. Her daughters don't know Thai, and their English isn't great. It's been hard for them to communicate with other children their age and just be kids. They do not have friends. I saw in their eye, like, they also feel like they want to go to school, they want to communicate with people, they want to have fun like other teenage. Wawa found something to help in Chiang Mai, the Burma Study Center. It provides free or very low cost English lessons for people from Myanmar. Garrett Costin is founder and director of the center. He's been running it for around 14 years. And he says this year, enrollment is up. For the first time, Recently, we've had to cap the number of students that we accept to, to start. We've, we've met our capacity. That's due in part because of the large number of Burmese who have fled the country. He says the conflict in Myanmar has also changed the type of students that attend. Before the coup, the center served mostly ethnic Shan from Shan State bordering Thailand. They usually made up over 90% of a class. But this term, Kostin found more ethnic Bamar from cities like Yangon and Mandalay wanting to enroll. For our last term, we had about just under 10% Burmese, Burman students. And for our new term that is starting shortly, that, that percentage is going to increase. We have a, a good handful of, of additional new Burmese students in Chiang Mai seeking to study here. Wawa is actually Rakhine and her husband is Mon. But their children were raised in Bamar majority schools in Yangon. 
without much exposure to Myanmar's ethnic groups or their long and various struggles against the military. She says they're getting some of that education now at the center. I went to a class at the Burma Study Center one weekday evening. The center is in a hip part of Chiang Mai, near trendy cafes and bars. Costin starts the class off with a discussion question. And it's going to be especially interesting because we have many students from Shan State and also students from different areas in Myanmar. Please share a significant event from your life that helped make you who you are today. For most in the class, that big life event was leaving Myanmar and in explaining their reasons for leaving, the discussion reliably drifts toward the topic of Myanmar's military. One Sean student is practicing his English by describing what the military would take from his village. If I, I have a, a case or a cow uh -huh. in, in my farm. Farm animals. Yeah, yeah, farm animals. And if the military came to our village and they want one, they just shut down and take it. The class is mostly Shan students, either migrants or the children of migrants. But there's two young Bamar students at the end of the table. They came to Thailand after the coup. They're contributing their experience with the country's military, like soldiers penchant for shooting protesters in the head. Can you say more? You said don't go to Myanmar, it's better. Uh, because some military, they, uh, uh, when, when they shoot people, right? They just shoot only head. Yes, yes that's true. Costin asks the Sean students if they're surprised by what they hear happening in the cities. No, because, because we faced this yeah. when we was young. Yeah. yeah, we faced this situation all the time. Yeah. Many decades. The Bamar students say they weren't aware of what was happening in the ethnic regions of their country, except vague notions of war. State schools certainly weren't teaching them. Oh, I know. We don't know that. And now you, you feel it? How we suffer for a long time? Uh, the Bamar students might be getting a glimpse into the lives of Sean at the school, but the Sean students are also learning about what those from inner Myanmar have gone through. One Sean student says she's glad to be sharing the school with them. Actually, we are Burmese also, right? Even we are Sean, but we are the same country, and we are also Burmese citizens, and so we can share everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that they also face the uh, the problem like us before. Hopefully, sometime soon, the students here will be able to share in English more about what makes them all Burmese. You've been listening to the Irrawaddy Newscast. I'm Justin Higginbottom. This is a new project from the Irrawaddy. We'll have an episode every Saturday where we run down our latest reporting. We'll also talk with experts about the week's biggest developments and will tell personal stories of those from Myanmar. You can find links to the stories mentioned here in the show notes. There's also a link if you'd like to support the Irrawaddy's reporting. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.